Good evening, everyone. My name is Arthur White, Director of External Affairs with Detroit Opera. We are thrilled that you all are here. I should have my colleague introduce herself, though, too. Sorry. Of course, no I'm problem. being rude. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. I'm Andrea Scobie. I'm the Director of Education here at Detroit Opera. Um, and I really want to thank you for coming out a little bit early on this Friday night to spend some time with us um, to delve more deeply into this opera and to learn a little bit about the real-life people um, whose stories we'll see on stage tonight. Um, we have an incredible guest to help bring their stories to life before we hear them in music, uh, and we just can't wait to get to it. Yeah, I was just going to say we are particularly excited. This is the first uh, operatic production on the stage of the Detroit Opera House that will be in Spanish. So this is very, very exciting for us, and hopefully it will be the first of many, many, many more. Yes, I hear some applause. Let's, <laughs> let's right. hear it. Yes, That's right. we want to make sure that this is uh, the first and not the last. So Indeed. Um, Did you want to talk about, uh, you talk about the, the or the... Yeah, you want to talk about the opera? Now talk about the composer. No problem. So the opera that we're going to see tonight, uh, Fountain of Tears, Ina Damar, um, is really the story of the poet and playwright and revolutionary Federico Garcia Lorca. Um, Lorca is one of our most important um, Spanish artists of the 20th century. I'm not going to talk too much about him because we have someone with us tonight who's going to speak to that story beautifully. Um, but I will just offer you a piece of context and say that the story tonight, his story, is really told through the eyes of his friend his collaborator, and his muse, Margarita Shirgu, who was a Spanish actress who originated many uh, of the roles in the plays that he wrote. And so I know we'll hear a little bit more about Margarita as well, but I just wanted to give you that frame, that that's sort of the, the eyes through which we see Lorca's story this evening. Very exciting. What's exciting also for me, uh, for all of us, I should say, you know, so many of our composers are long since gone, Mozart and Verdi and that sort of thing. And so this composer is very much alive and well, Osvaldo uh, Golihov. And so we had a chance to uh, spend some time with him. He was our podcast guest and uh, one of our guests at opening night. And so uh, I just want to tell you a little bit about him. Uh, he's a two-time Grammy Award-winning composer and professor uh, who hails from Argentina. Uh, he completed his musical studies in Israel and the United States, uh, getting his doctorate in music at the University of Pennsylvania. And he goes on to have some rather prestigious uh, composer-in-residence uh, appointments, uh, L.A. Philharmonic, uh, Ravinia Festival in Chicago, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and, and at Carnegie Hall. Uh, but it's his first piece, one of his early pieces, La Pasión Según San Marcos, The Passion of St. Mark, that really sort of made a big splash in the musical world. And so his star has been rising uh, ever since, all the way through to his very first opera that we're going to hear uh, today, Ina Damar, Fountain of Tears. Yeah, I think it's time to bring on our guest. You've heard enough from us. So, Arthur, will you give us an introduction? Yes, this uh, young lady, first of all, she is so fantastic. We are, she did an event for us a few weeks back. I would sit and listen to her read the phone book. Uh, but she's a dancer, a lecturer, a professor. Uh, she graduated from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor with a double major in elementary education and psychology. Uh, she later attended Wayne State University in Detroit, earning a master's in Spanish and a doctorate in modern languages and literary criticism. Uh, in 2016, she published a book, Sociological Approaches to Garcia Lorca's Literary Productions. And in the fall of 2018, she joined the Department of Romance Languages and Literatures at the University of Michigan as a full-time faculty in Spanish. Please welcome Ms. Lisa Montes. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Arthur. Lisa, thank, thank you so thank much you. for being with thank us you. tonight. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're going to probably uh, start out. I wanted to sort of uh, 
uh, dig into uh, Lorca. For those who might not be as familiar uh, with him, could you give us your best elevator pitch, uh, his impact, who he was, and what his impact was? Oof. Right, and it's kind of trying to condense a lot into my elevator pitch. You so got 30 Gar minutes. 30, right. <laughs> so Garcia Lorca was, as mentioned, so, so a poet playwright from Andalusia in the south of Spain. And so much more than that, though. He was just a, a completely, a very well-rounded artist, um, visual arts, musician we can speak more about soon. Just somebody who really transcends the boundaries of any kind of boundaries in humanity, so cultural boundaries. Um, as you will learn a bit more about him, his messages just really ring true they, as they rang before when he was during still living, and they do now. He's somebody that is very relatable, um, just a completely beautiful, just a really beautiful soul as well, so wonderful person, extremely talented in his writing, in his music. And uh, so happy that you'll be able to learn more about him this evening. Yeah, I think to start us out, you know, as you mentioned, um, uh, Lorca came from Andalusia, from southern Spain, and he wrote really beautifully um, about the folkloric traditions of his native land. And I wonder if you can give us some context for the confluence of cultures and history that would have impacted Lorca and that were present um, in his region. Absolutely. So, so Lorca was born in Fuente Vaqueros. It was a small pueblo in, of Granada in the south of Spain. And he came from a relatively affluent family. Uh, he, was he was payo. So in Spain, you are payo or gitano. So gitano would be the Spanish Roma, and then payo are those who are not Spanish Roma. So he came from a payo family, but he had this deep love for the gitanos, for the Spanish, for the Spanish Roma. And so while he came from a different social class, well, he grew up with a very educated family. His mother was a school teacher. His father was a wealthy landowner. Very upper class, upper middle class family. He decided he really took a an interest in the Spanish Roma, in the Gitanos, and spent a lot of time and just really helped to elevate their social status at the time because they were really looked down upon, and. He, we will find a lot. He has two collect, entire collections of poems, uh, Romancero Gitano and Cante de Poema Hondo, two entire collections of poetry dedicated to them and about them. We also see a lot of his native Andalusia. He just really loved his land so much. And it really, if you've never been to Andalusia, please go at some point. It's just absolutely gorgeous. And he spoke so much of the nature. And you'll find a lot of these themes of nature and beauty, kind of mixed in surreal ways in a lot of his poetry and a lot of his plays. And um, he really did try to, and he uh, tried, but very successful in allowing this visual imagery to really be so strong in his writing. So, so in Lorca, in his early 20s, he moves to Madrid and he becomes a part of this generation of 27. Wondering what you could tell us about that generation and how he fit in this. Absolutely. So, so he did. He moved to the, um, the Residencia de Estudiantes in the student residence in Madrid in his early 20s. And uh, that was considered the cultural mecca of Spain at the time. So many artists lived there, writers, artists, you name it. It was originally started, so the Generación de 27, the generation of 27, so this is 1927, of course, and what, the, what they started off as a group of poets who were striving to 
kind of start to modernize a bit. It's kind of not the best way to say it, but kind of taking classical themes in the classical style of poetry in Spain, which was very much the predominant style of poetry, and weave in more modern, kind of surreal um, aspects of it. And so it was this group of poets, and they wanted to kind of begin to push the boundaries of what was happening. So if we kind of think about Spain, and this is really condensing a lot of history into the short time, but there was this political pendulum that was happening. And so it would be, there would be like the left liberal side, and then it would swing, and there would be this harsh dictatorship. And it swung back and forth a few times during Lorca's short lifetime. And so they took advantage of this time when there was, when people were allowed to express themselves a bit more. And they started to push, push a bit, push a bit against what was considered proper Spanish, you know, conventional style of writing at the time. And so while it started out as a group of poets, it later drew attention of others. So for example, Salvador Dali was one, uh, Luis Buñuel, the, the film director, um, as, and, and others, uh, Juan Ramon Jimenez, the writer. So they all began, other, so other people from other styles and genres began to join this group. So, and it really did help to um, highlight the social situations in Spain and just kind of break away from the, the mold of what was considered what was considered Spanish at the time, right? Proper classical Spanish literature, poetry, art. And so it was at this time where we really start to see kind of the limits being tested. And it did not last forever, that's for sure, because it did cause some upset. Absolutely. I know we're going to want to talk a little bit about his, you know, relationship with politics as we as we move through this talk. But, um, you know, one of the pieces of Lorca's life that I'm most fascinated with and that first kind of led me to Lorca was his time with the traveling theater troupe La Baraca. Um, and I wonder if you can talk to us about that company, his work with that troupe. Um, what was the impact of that work both for Lorca and more broadly? Absolutely. And what was La Baraca? Yes, La Barraca. La Barraca in Spanish, a barraca is actually, is like a tent, a bear, kind of thinking of a tent. And this was a traveling theater group. And what they would do is Lorca's intent was to bring, it, so if you kind of think about what was happening in Spain at the time, this would have been the late 1920s, early 1930s in Spain. And when we look at these smaller areas, these smaller villages, people did not have access to the theater, right? If you were not living in Madrid or you were not living in Barcelona or the bigger cities, people didn't have access to be able to see live theater. And so Lorca really felt that he wanted to be, he felt everybody should be able to participate and have those experiences. So commissioned by the Second Republic, which was now, if we think back of that swinging pendulum, all of a sudden, the Second Republic, they're this very left, um, left group, they're in charge, and they commissioned Lorca to be the director of this, of this group. And what they did was they went around to these, to these pueblos, and they put on some of these wonderful, wonderful plays, ranging back from plays that Calderón de la Barca, for example, ranging back to some of the more, the older kind of classic plays, and then bringing in some of the newer ones as well. And it was really something, just a way to bring the arts to the people, for people who otherwise wouldn't have, you know, wouldn't have access to it. So it just really spoke a lot to his character and how he just 
as previously mentioned, he did grow up with all of these experiences himself, but he just had such a love for, for everybody that he wanted everyone to have the same experiences. Yeah, and it was during his time with La Baraka that he wrote the Rural Trilogy, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder yes. if you could talk about those plays, um, what those were, kind of what the, the themes were of that work. Sure, so the Rural Trilogy, there were three. There were Bodas de Sangre, a Blood Wedding, if you're so afraid. Blood Wedding, there was uh, Yerma, which is really translated as Baron, and La Casa de Bernarda Alba, the House of Bernarda Alba. And on all three of these, so they're these three plays, the, he really pushes into, this is, they're all based in rural lives, and he really dives into what were the roles of the females at the time, what were the roles of the males at the time, and which was very reflective of Spanish society at that time, the women had definitely had their place. And when they tried to step outside of that, it just tragedy ensues. And so he really was pushing and making a lot of social commentary, which was, um, well, not very appreciated later <laughs> by, um, by Francisco Franco and his regime when he got back in charge, or when he, sorry, when he took control of Spain. Gosh, I guess mm -hmm. that leads right into this question. Uh, looking at his complete body of work, you know, poems, poetry, that's what plays, are there themes, overarching themes, that made him the target of Franco's regime? Were there certain things he was talking about or not talking about? Or well, so that was certainly that was certainly one of the themes there. Uh, also, Lorca was a homosexual, and that was absolutely not something that was considered okay during this time. And so, some of his poetry, which later many of his we'll find that his whole canon of work had been banned until 1975 with the death of Franco um, because they felt that there were homoerotic themes um, in the plays, in the poetry. And so this was just also something. So his outspoken, he, he was never really directly outspoken, but it was certainly insinuated. And so just kind of criticizing Spanish society and then also just knowing that he was homosexual, or suspecting at least, reading his poetry, they just wanted to put an end to that. They, they were, he made the Spanish regime, very the dictatorship, very uncomfortable. Interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, I mentioned at the top of um, my comments that the story tonight is told and seen through the eyes of uh, his friend, his muse, Margarita Shergu. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about Margarita. Um, oh. Who was she and what was her relationship with Lorca? Yes, so Margarita Shergu was a, um, she was from, the, from Catalonia, from the Barcelona area, and she was already a very well-established actress at the time. And one night in a Madrid bar, here comes this young poet, playwright, sits down with her, and really wanted to, to approach her asking if she would stage Mariana Pineda, one of this, a play that he had been working on. And she thought, what the heck, I'll take a chance on this kid. And they ended up staging, he, she staged, helped to stage it. Um, Dali did the costumes for it, designed the costumes for it. And with the great success of that, it kind of cemented their friendship. And so she then, he would just, when he would write these plays, he would cast her as the lead role. And they had this really beautiful friendship. And she was also extremely politically outspoken. In fact, she was, they used to call her Margarita La Roja, Margarita the Red, 
because of her left-leaning communist ideology. And she was le a lesbian and definitely targeted. So she had gone to South America where she was performing in some plays and things started to get pretty dangerous in Spain. And she urged him, which we will learn, she urged Lorca, she said, please leave Spain, it's not safe for you there. Um, come here. And he said, I'm finishing, let me finish writing this when I'm done writing La Casa de Bernarda Alba, I'll join you. And unfortunately, he, did, he finished the play, but did not get there in time. And that was when he was, that was when he was um, taken from his home, taken from a friend's home actually, and executed by uh, two soldiers of Franco. This, uh, get the opening I mentioned uh, last week, uh, we had the composer uh, with us with, in conversation with Yuval Sharon, our artistic director. And so in one of their, one of their um, moments in their conversation, he said uh, that there was one character in this opera that hangs over the whole opera, and it's Mariana Pineda. Mm -hmm. Just wondering, could you talk about why um, he was, she was so important to Lorca and his life? Yes, so Margar Margarita, ma sorry, Mariana, <laughs> we talked about Margarita Chirgo, <laughs> Mariana Pineda was a, she's a Spanish historical figure, she was from Granada, and she was a leftist, leftist heroine, and she died for her causes. Now, she died in the 1830s, so quite a while before, Lorca was born in 1898 but she was executed, publicly executed, because she, again, she was very, very politically outspoken. And she had been arrested, and they said, if you give up the people that you are working with, tell us the names and we'll spare you your life. And she said no, and she wouldn't do that. And so she was, she was executed. And so for Lorca, though, he, in his play of the same name, Mariana Pineda, he really, he just really shows what a true heroine she was. It's almost mythical, the play. And she is somebody that he just, he truly admired. In fact, she said she, her birthday, or excuse me, her execution date, May 26th, is still celebrated in Granada. There is a, they have, they have a commemoration day for her. Um, but definitely a person who's of great importance in, in uh, Spanish history, in Granada, especially in Andalusian history. And, he was just somebody just very important that uh, Lorca looked up to. Yeah, and we'll see that tonight in mm -hmm. the opera. You know, I want to switch gears a little bit, Lisa, because you are not only an expert on all things Lorca, and thank you for sharing that with us tonight, but you're also an expert and practitioner of flamenco. So I'd like to talk a little bit about flamenco music. Um, we hear so much of its influence in this opera. Um, I wonder if you can tell us, you know, we know that flamenco has its roots in Arab music, but it also carries influences of Indian and Romani musical traditions. Um, how do we see and hear pieces of these traditions and culture in flamenco music? Well, one of the pop most popular theories, with flamenco being more of a popular style of dance, it, well, there was, there's not really, you're not going to find much written about it. There was much written history. Uh, but one of the, probably the most leading theory right now is the Gitanos, the Roma, who, are, who ended up in southern Spain, originated in the north of India and began traveling, or of course this took, many years and coming into contact with several different Roma groups. And so some of course would join, some would stay, some would join the caravan. And it's of course all what, how, what way of communication, right? Of music, we might have different languages, but we can communicate through music and rhythms. And so they would make their way eventually, again, condensing a lot of history, a lot of miles in a, just a brief 
couple of sentences, but we can, when we look at the Kathak style of Indian dancing, that is very percussive footwork, barefoot, but wearing the bells around the ankles. And so when we hear flamenco music, we, well, we wear shoes, but we're doing that same type of percussive footwork. And we'll hear some of the, some rhythms that are actually similar sounding. Um, the hand movements, where in, for flamenco, the movements that we do with the hands, they, they don't have really any meaning. It's just more to adorn what we're, the, the dancing. But we'll see similar types of more stylized um, hand movements and our movements in the Kathak style of dancing. Now, when we look at, and, and the music, if we listen to the singing, we can hear some similarities in the tones in both the Indian styles of, of singing and, as, and in a lot of the Arabic styles. Now, when we look at the history of Southern Spain, the Moors were in Southern Spain for 800 years. And so, of course, what will be left behind is going to be a lot of those, a lot of the musical traditions, a lot of the, a lot of the same types of tones and, and songs. And of course, fl so flamenco, when people say, oh, flamenco's Spanish, well, that doesn't really mean anything because it's, it, flamenco is just such a conglomeration of so many different groups. And we have African influences, we have um, South American influences, you know, so. So many different styles. As well as some of the music we're going to hear tonight, klezmer is, uh, is definitely that present, Abs the, the yes. rumba and other, other styles. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, speaking of music, you had mentioned earlier that Lorca was a musician as well as a poet and playwright. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about his background, his work as a musician? Sure. So Lorca was a phenomenal pianist. He, that was his first, his first love. He, he played piano beautifully. And from piano, he, a little bit later than when he was spending the time living with the Gitanos, or living near and visiting often with the Gitanos in Spain, he then learned some flamenco guitar and just had a, a really um, wonderful ability to adapt to different musical styles. When he teamed up with La Argentinita, who was a flamenco dancer, she, would, she sang, danced, played castanets, and often Lorca would accompany her, not on guitar, but accompany her on piano, and there are recordings you can find if you look up Lorca um, piano, for example. You'll find him playing and her singing, and uh, just, he's just a really well-rounded, well-rounded person. Mm -hmm. Actually, can I, can I jump back? I just thought yeah. of something. And when I saw your, your talk a couple of weeks back, uh, you spoke about Lorca comes to the United States, sorry, I can get off the music, but I'll be quick. Mm -hmm. uh, he comes to the United States, um, and does some work at Columbia University. It's 1929, and so I know he's not here long. He leaves. I assumed he left because the stock market, you know, the, the, that started the depression. I assumed that's what prompted him to go back to Spain, but I understand that's not necessarily the case. I was wondering if you could talk about that. Right, so he accepted, it was a one-year contract to lecture in primarily New York. He did a little bit in Vermont, and then he went to Cuba for a bit, but he came, they were asked, he was, he was asked to come in to do these lectures in New York, and at first he wasn't sure. But then he was going through, sadly, a breakup with um, Spanish sculptor Emilio Aladren. He also had a falling out with Luis Buñuel and Salvador Dali, and just was very also discontented with the Spanish, the political situation in Spain. And so he said fine and accepted this position to spend a year lecturing in New York. But when he was there, he first got there, and now this is very different than what he was used to in this, you know, very rural Andalusia 
you know, his hometown of Granada. And so he gets to New York, and at first he's just mesmerized and just completely awed by the skyscraper and the hustle and bustle and just the noise because there's, there was like nothing he had ever known. And, but he started to hang out at uh, Smell's Paradise in Harlem. So during the day, if you can imagine, during the day he's in this very like um, kind of ivory tower academia type of world. And then at night he's hanging out with the African-American musicians in Harlem. And uh, just all of a sudden, one night, it just clicks. So Lorca himself also very much identified with people who were living more on the margins of society because he, and were not exactly accepted. People who were considered, for example, the Gitanos, who were not seen through the, you know, as like this higher class Spanish. So he himself, while his um, financial status was fine, you know, he, does, he was a gay man. He just felt like he never quite fit in. And so he also felt very marginalized. So identifying with the Gitanos. And then he goes and he sees how the African Americans in Har Harlem were living during the time and just saw this great discrepancy. And so well, during the day, he didn't see any of that because he's in the university. And then he sees how people are living. And he just became revolted. He did not want to stay there where he once admired the skyscrapers. He just saw the skyscrapers. They blocked out the light. They kept things cold. He said they were like it was a that it was mechaniz me uh, the mechanization of humanity. So he felt that it lost all of humanity there. So he wanted to leave. And then he did get his, his time in Cuba. And that did restore his spirit because he felt being with the Cuban people it was just such a different, so much warmth there that he he was much happier, but um, no, he became very disenchanted and very depressed when he was in New York. We even see changes in his writing at the time, too. It becomes just darker and, yeah. Wow, fascinating. I was going to ask about that. You can see that in his poetry. Um, it remind me of the name of the collection, Lisa, that he wrote. Uh, while poet, he's in so poet in New York. Yeah, Poet mm -hmm. in New York. We start to see some of the themes shift um, mm -hmm. in that work. And then, of course, after Cuba, he came back, and that was the time of, of La Baraca yes. and, and being back in his native country and connecting with his countrymen through the theater there. So, um, And that led to his rural trilogy. So we kind of see a lot of shifting in his writing during that time. Mm -hmm. So we're coming to the end of our time. I wish that we could keep going. I so mm -hmm. appreciate all of your expertise. Um, but I want to end with a personal question, Lisa. And, you know, what keeps you coming back to Lorca? Um, what inspires you most about his life and his work? And what do you hope that our audience takes away from his story? Well, gosh, so many things. But just to name a few, well, number one, as a flamenco dancer, he's so revered. He's called the poeta, they would say, the poeta de los gitanos, so the, the poet of the Spanish Roma, because just of the way that he helped to elevate the status of flamenco. And I really, I credit him for keeping flamenco alive today. At the time, it was really going by the wayside. And he, along with Manuel de Falla, the composer, they really worked to start to write things down, to start incorporating things, and to get bring flamenco back into the forefront. So for me, it, my flamenco aspect, the side of my life, um, I just really appreciate that. He, because without it, I probably would not be able to speak at all about flamenco here tonight. Um, and just his, his poems are used so frequently in flamenco songs. So, um, and just with his poetry, just with his writing in general, it's just, it, there's such a beauty to it. 
the language he uses is very simple in terms of the actual words. It's not, you're not going to find things that are very um, overdone, I guess you could say. He, he uses very simple language, but there's so much beauty in his messages. And they really are, as I mentioned earlier, he just, his messages really do, they transcend all, all boundaries. I mean, he's, so, he's somebody that people can just relate to in so many levels. And every time I go back and look at something, oh, I never even knew, you know, you can connect it to something, to a new experience maybe that you've had or something you haven't thought of. Thank you. Well, I hope that this information tonight and the opera itself inspires you to go dig more deeply into Lorca's work, into his life. I can currently say that his work is just incredibly beautiful and yeah. speaks on so many levels. So um, we hope that that's something that you can all discover if you mm -hmm. are not already uh, a Lorca devotee. Hopefully you will be after this evening. Um, but we have come to the end of our time. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please help me thank Professor Lisa Montes for sharing with us this thank evening. You. Lisa, thank you, thank Lisa. you so thank much. You. Thank you so much. Thank you to both of you. And for everybody who's here again, thank you for coming out and spending this time and enjoy the opera. Thank, thank you. you.